Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. A recurring character on Evening Shade with Burt Reynolds. But all the other deaths in this movie are, are actually quite subtle. And that's where my story begins with Simple Plan. Instead, I think I like Simple Plan better than Fog. Oh, the movie, yeah. Welcome to the big stream presented by the big lead. I am Kyle Coster. He is Stephen Douglas, and this is the only place on the internet you will find discussing the 1998 movie, A Simple Plan, today. I would say it's a classic, but I think in speaking with you and actually kind of auditing my own memory of this, which only popped up very recently, this is one that's kind of been lost and forgotten to time, but I definitely remember it so vividly when I was in high school the era of getting like stars or showtime for a weekend and they would just show movie after movie. I feel like this one was in heavy rotation and I remembered the ability to kind of just hop in no matter where it was and be up to speed with the story because it was so simple. It is so easy to follow, but it is also really clean. And I think that's what really makes it work. Steven, when I said I wanted to do a simple plan, I have to assume you just thought I wanted to talk a little early 2000s pop punk. Uh, yes, and I hope we have time at the end to actually do that. But I, I did see a simple plan uh, when it originally came out on VHS. I remember renting this movie and I remember watching it in the, uh, in the, v- the old VCR and thinking oh you know it's a good movie and it's it's a movie that i do think about from time to time it pops into my head for whatever reason it stuck with me but i don't know if i've actually seen it since um people were watching media on uh tapes but i was so i was surprised you know it's pretty random but uh it was it was good to revisit it i'm i'm glad i've seen it again and i look forward to seeing it again in uh 2040 or so and the thing is is it will hold up because this is yeah. kind of a throwback movie it could be set in any era it's intentionally placed in rural minnesota we can't discuss this film without talking about one that came 2 years prior perhaps you've heard of it it got far more critical acclaim it kind of won the battle. We were at a time where like we were making movies about the same things and releasing them in in tight windows. You think independence day, deep impact stuff like that, where it's just like volcano. And I think Dante's peak came out very close to each other. So it's like, let's make two of these. And the elements of the story are extremely similar. Whereas Fargo is obviously set in North Dakota 
This one centers around a similar tale of kind of everyday people falling into the world of crime, doing heinous things, and also the limitations of kind of like small town police. But what if this incredible moment came to your little neck of the woods? How would the people who live those relatively small lives find themselves negotiating the situation? And that's the plot of A Simple Plan. In the lead is Bill Paxton. He plays a guy that really resonated with me. He kind of keeps it slow. He has a nice job, a <laughs> feed story. He has a beautiful wife. The movie begins talking about advice that his father gave him that all a man needs to be happy in life is basically have a roof over your head and people who love you. And really a truism that I felt hit home so hard for me now as a 38-year-old. I was like, oh, there's there's some wisdom in that. He has a brother, Jacob. They are still scarred from their father's death. Jacob is played by Billy Bob Thornton, who at this time was white hot. He was a guy who would play all types of different characters. And in this one, he's kind of a dim-witted person who has a good heart, but just isn't able to keep up to speed on a lot of things. They showcase that Hank, who Bill Paxton plays, is a college graduate. He's cast as kind of like the thinking man. And Jacob, who Billy Bob Thornton plays, he has a best friend named Lou in the movie played by Brent Briscoe. And they're just kind of your classic, you know, dull guys who will go out in the woods and drink beer and shoot stuff. And they happen upon a downed plane out in a remote area of a wildlife preserve. And they discover that there's over $4 million in it, which hatches the plan. What if we keep it? Which begins as a joke at first. And Hank is the pragmatic one is obviously against this idea that Lou and Jacob are kind of going with, but eventually he decides to kind of be the ringleader of the plan, the brain trust. And we see the way that his decisions have immediate and profound consequences. And it's just really deep in seeing like every step of the way, I felt like you're kind of rooting for these guys, even the two more bumbling ones, because they don't deserve the fate that ultimately befalls them. And I think it's really effective in presenting a world where we can say in abstract that we would always do the right thing. We would never get caught up in something like this, but the ease in which they slip and fall into it. I think is probably a lot more realistic than a lot of movies you see where people just have like no emotional grappling with it or whatever. And we know that once you enter the door, kick the door open just a little bit in one of these situations, things tend to spiral out of control very quickly. So that's the essential plot. I mean, it follows the beats that you would expect in such a thing with law enforcement trying to track it down. Uh, Bridget Fonda, who plays Hank's wife, Sarah, is fantastic. I loved her. She was probably my favorite acting performance in the whole movie. She kind of plays the moral guide, first being against it, but ultimately going in along with it. And more than that, kind of providing like all the necessary ideas to execute the plan. It's a simple story. It's it's something that it's a it's a thought experiment. Like, what would you do if you found money? Like what? Basically, I mean, just what would you do if you were outside and you found a $20 bill on the ground? You know, it's like, well, you like to think that maybe you'd maybe you'd find the owner if there was somebody wandering around looking for their $20 bill. But I mean, most likely just stick it in your pocket. But I mean, for $4.4 million, it's there's just so many more consequences. And it's 
yeah, like you said, it goes, it kind of goes exactly how you would expect it to go. Everybody turns on each other. It's just a, a very well done story. Um, you compared it to Fargo, really stood out watching it. You know, but probably about halfway through, I'm like, oh, this kind of has a Fargo feel. This feels like a Coen Brothers movie. And um, I looked it up, and this movie had been. Uh, it was based on a book that was being written before Fargo. So it wasn't, it, it was one of those simultaneous idea things. And Sam Raimi, um, the director, he, he'd also worked with the Coen brothers on a few movies before this. So it's not an accident that, or, and it wasn't a ripoff that it felt kind of like a Fargo. The cast was great. Uh, Bill Paxton, I actually thought was a little, uh, kind of seemed like he was mailing it in a few scenes i thought especially early in the film where he's trying to just nail the uh you know common small town man just the the good guy going to work for the nine to five but billy bob became that character and it was also surprising to see brent briscoe who had i who is one of those classic uh hollywood that guys who has been in everything pretty much like he he go back all the way to uh the 19 early 1990s he was a recurring character on evening shade with burt reynolds and then his wife the woman who played his wife was uh becky ann baker who was the mom on um uh on uh freaks and geeks just like a a, a middle-aged mom she's been playing that part for decades it was just fun to, and Bridget Fonda. When was the last time you thought about Bridget Fonda? And then, like in the '90s, she was definitely a thing. Peter Fonda's daughter. She was in like uh, Jackie Brown and a bunch of other stuff. And then Gary Cole, of course, shows up at the end. And uh, Chelsea Ross, who played the uh, the cop, was is just another one of those guys who's like in everything, and you're not really sure who he is, but you're like, I recognize him. The casting is so unbelievable because. Every single actor or actress that we mentioned has that small town vibe. Like they feel like just an ordinary person. I hadn't seen a Bill Paxton movie in a long time. And I was blown away at just kind of how symmetrical he was. He's just like a guy where he represents everybody, like just a normal dude. Like, He's likable. He's just the right amount of handsome. He's just kind of like a person you see on the screen and you're like, hey, if I could be that person when I grow up, like I'll have done a good job. Like that's just kind of like a nice aesthetic. And I, I, I agree with you. Identify with, with him. Yeah, exactly. I, I do kind of agree that like his chops weren't on full display early in the movie. And he does kind of, I, I don't really buy his transformation completely because he is so level-headed at the beginning and then he seems to have his head in the clouds immediately and he turns into a stone-cold killer rather yeah simply you go down the list like billy bob thornton like was an a-lister at this time but he is a guy you would meet at a gas station chelsea ross as the sheriff carl could not have been more perfect like i actually kind of would have preferred to see him in fargo i think he would have been better Every single person, you believe they live in this town and you believe that they live these lives and you believe that this is a story where we talk about how they don't make movies like this anymore. 
And that's a tired refrain, but it's really true. Like you don't just make a straightforward, simple procedural thing about everyday people, you know, like you either try to make them seem better than everybody else, or you try to play them down to being like these bumpkins, but this just kind of shoots it straight. And it, it was weird. Like, I don't want to go full, like Chuck Klosterman here, but I did feel in watching a simple plan and a little bit with Fargo, like, I felt like I kind of understood, like what you saw on the screen really reflected my feeling of growing up in this country as a kid. Like that feels so true. Like what was the nineties? Like what was the culture? Like what was kind of the images that were presenting on their, on our screen. And I found this movie to be such an interesting time capsule because it does kind of feel like it was made 40 years ago. It could have made been made 50 years ago and things have changed so dramatically. If they set out to tell a story like this now, it would just be so much more aggressive and have like Mark Wahlberg, like hanging upside down from a tree, blasting guns with both yeah. hands, right? They wouldn't make it like this. And it was also uh, a movie with like a $16 million budget or something, which is just one of those uh, budgets that doesn't exist anymore. And like, I mean, not to get too inside Hollywood as we uh, try not to do on this podcast, but I like the small budget, uh, big name cast, it's kind of, it would, I mean, this is the kind of thing that would probably end up on Netflix today. It was made at the perfect time, the late, the mid late nineties, because if this movie was made like five years later, all of a sudden there are flip phones involved and it's extremely dated, but because it took place in the nineties and these are just, it just holds up. It looks perfectly natural. You've got the, just the people out in the country uh, living their normal lives. And then this, incredible thing happens to them it works out well for you know how well the movie holds up that it's just it took place at just the right time and it has to take place in a remote location yep. where law enforcement is relatively non-existent or you know even more accurately like you're friends with them like it's the people you see at the diners it's the people who are like helping you jumpstart your car or whatever so you kind of have like that neighborhood feel and then you need the rustic quietness of you know the fact that this movie takes place in the snow makes so much sense because it is so quiet and it is like so serene and like you really imagine that when you go to these areas like you wonder how some crimes ever get solved because it's just so expansive like if people don't know to look for something they're not going to look for it and those stakes of showing that it's not unreasonable for these people to believe that they're going to get away with it is really important because so many times you see a movie and you just thought, oh, that's a terrible choice or you know it's going to work out. And, and obviously it's a movie, it's not going to go smoothly, but throughout at least half this movie, you could really convince yourself that they are going to get away with it because they come pretty close. Things kind of fall apart and as they, I mean, it's just ex exactly what you expect with you can see it coming from the beginning how like uh, Hank doesn't he definitely doesn't trust Lou, you know, he and he's worried about his brother's decision making, which uh, is quickly confirmed when he gets out of the car to talk to the cop. So you, you definitely believe you, you think for a while they're going to get away with it. But the, the seeds are there early with the mis the quick mistrust. 
Bill Paxton Hank taking taking control of the money, and you know what's going to happen. You know that Lou is going to show up knocking on the door in the middle of the night, you know, looking for money because you know who who really who is going to miss this cash if you start spending it off one little stack at a time. Um, and then the way it builds and comes to a head at the uh, at Lou's house with his wife is just that violence was i mean you believed it it was super tense and again it's kind of, maybe it's just cuz i've seen this movie but you know you know what's going to happen and then the shotgun blast that took her took the wife off her feet was just incredible um just mo- movie magic really um and then you know he's just got to try and f- figure out how to clean it up which is something that he's doing over and over in this movie just trying to cover up his own uh horrible misdeeds as he tries to continue to be the good guy but you understand how it happens because he wants to he suddenly he needs to keep this money and he want he will do whatever it takes and he does it over and over and it's i mean to the point where he has to kill his brother you know it's he he goes I, you definitely hope that you wouldn't you would try and keep the money, but I hope I wouldn't kill my brother over it. <laughs> you know, best laid plans, uh, as the movie title suggests, often go wrong. Um, I would say it's probably more about like it's not so much about the money as soon as they start lying to the police, because mm-hmm. then it's just like then you're in actual legal trouble. So it's one thing that they never kind of account for, like they're worried about getting caught. Yeah. Uh, but they don't really understand that all the steps that they're taking to shield themselves from getting caught is just creating a much bigger problem for them that it gets to the point where they couldn't just return it. So it's just like, you can't be in just a little bit. Like the, it was a very pragmatic idea to just, you know, the Hank says, let's hang on to it. See if people start asking questions. People start asking questions immediately. Uh, okay. Thanks to Jacob going up and uh, giving the unsolicited conversation at the cop car. The, Seen at Lou's house with the double murder. It's I remembered that scene and that shot is just just one of the more memorable things that that I can remember from like that era. And this movie is not the argument could be made that it's a little bit slow, but in rewatching it, like there's a ton of action. Like there's action in every scene. It's either tense, like how do we get out of this situation? Uh oh, something has gone wrong, and someone who shouldn't be here is approaching it's actual violence which there's a pretty good deal of and then there's covering up the violence and then there's also like that's just kind of like interrupted with these pretty poignant family moments when you learn that jacob is far wiser in so many matters than hank you know it's not about book learning as they say and (laughs) jacob has seized the world for what it really is and i think that hank kind of lives like a very academic uh approach to it and has probably denied himself like a lot of the feelings so i think like it moves along really nicely and there's a lot of action-packed sequences and the shotgun blast is obviously so memorable and very over the top but all the other deaths in this movie are are actually quite subtle and, and quiet and and smothering but in a way that intimacy makes them resonate so much more like i i mean not to like litigate what's a more like effective use of of gun violence and movies or actual violence. But like when you see how intimate these crimes are, 
they make them seem even more heinous as opposed to like a, a shoot 'em up film where people are just blasting indiscriminately without like concern or cause and without really knowing the backstory of who these people are, understanding that they're murdering their neighbors, they're murdering their friends, they're murdering their family at the end. Yeah, there's an incredible body count in this movie for having such a small cast. And uh, going back to the pacing of the film, uh, I watched it split up over two nights. And it, it was kind of, I definitely think the beginning was a little slow, uh, maybe by design, just to uh, make you feel what it's like in this sleepy Minnesota town. Um, and then I put it back on the second night and all of a sudden I paused it and there were only 20 minutes left. I'm like, how did how, it flew by? that middle part with all the action. It was just a, a good uh, story and well done movie overall. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that you stumbled upon it. So Sam Raimi, okay. He would go on to direct the Spider-Man movies and he made like kind of a lot of like high concept experimental films before doing this. And this was a departure because it's, you know, as clean and as uncomplicated as it it possibly comes. And the reason he's able to do it, I think, is he small things become big. Like one of the big dramatic moments in the movie is confirming the suspicion Sarah's suspicions that Gary Cole, who just is comes out of the bat, you know, throwing a hundred on the black in this movie. Like he's so fantastic. The scene where the big reveal comes via a black and white newspaper photo, right? Like it's so analog and it's such a tiny, subtle moment. And yet like, that's the moment your heart sinks. Hank is unable to get a proper gun, but he just grabs a handful of bullets and he's one by one trying to see the one that fit in. Like it's these tiny, small movements that make it so dramatic and so tense. And it kind of shows the ability to... I think to me, the ability to present a story like that, that makes you feel those emotions without turning the volume up past like seven or eight ever is unbelievable filmmaking. And I, and I think it's something that when I see it, I really appreciate it. And I think it's kind of desperately missed because people think going bigger is always better, but you in nailing kind of the smaller scale stuff, you can oftentimes have a deeper impact. Yeah, definitely had that coen brothers feel um and sam Raimi was i mean he he might have been like the first like uh small town like indie cred director who i mean he did like the evil dead army of darkness hud susker proxy um or he he wrote that but and then he became the spider-man guy he was one of those first guys that, and that's kind of like the formula for the marvel movies now is they they find some like indie guy and they put him in charge of these giant blockbusters, and then they never really go back. I mean, his la his latest uh, thing was uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, it's it's kind of hard to believe that this is the same guy that uh, that did a simple plan. Okay, here's the question though: If this movie came out in 2022, a what would the reception be from the public, and b would you even see it? Like, would we find it and would we enjoy it? Because I think the answer would be, it would be kind of forgettable on Netflix. You might hear about it from like one friend, but it would come and go. And I think that all my years of movie watching, if I didn't have the initial 
connection to this movie would have made it harder for me to enjoy because I entered it and I think you entered it from the safe place of knowing that, hey, I've seen this once. I know it's pretty good. I just am wondering about today's audience's ability to stick with it or if it would feel like homework and, and if it could even work if it was something that people tried to make something like this right now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is going to be something that we'll probably discuss like every time we talk about any movie is like, would this exist back then? Would anyone see it now? I mean, like, I feel like we're the only two people on the planet Earth who have seen Spiderhead. Um, so, you know, I th I think you're really onto something. Uh, this would, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Mark Wahlberg, would he would be like the Bill Paxton character, uh, except he would be like, obviously jacked under uh 15 layers of clothing you're like wow that is a hulky grain salesman um and, and there would be no fumbling around with bullets um he would just he would grab the biggest gun he'd stick it in his shirt and he'd come out shooting in the forest i don't know it, i i don't know if this exact movie would exist today it would probably be made and go to a film festival and end up on some streaming service and like no one would see it but i mean no one really saw it when it was out because it made like i, I said the budget was like 16 i think the i think it made like 17 million at the box office which is not anything and i don't ever remember like seeing this show up on cable like something like um u.s marshals which was on non-stop a lot of there are a lot of like you know like basic cable classics uh, i think the mummy would call them huh the mummy yeah stuff that was like constantly on tv and i just i don't remember that with this movie i just remember seeing it on vhs and then thinking about every now and then and then this was literally the first time that i'd seen it anywhere on like a streaming service and they showed it at like because when you look up on uh hulu it tells you when it's on tv next and it was like gonna air at like 12 50 a.m so I don't know. I I can't imagine the uh the Google search traffic is going to be great on this unless we uh rotate or uh pivot to uh early 2000s emo. Well, let's do it right now. I mean, I, simple plan I think they reached their nadir in 2003. They bust onto the scene with I'd do anything followed up by perfect, addicted, I'm just a kid four bangers right there. And gosh, you know, they were like, so they were almost like the boy band pop punk thing. It was kind of like, they were not rough around the edges at all. It, it kind of seemed uh, like filler, never like my favorite, but they really kind of came and went really quickly, but they definitely had a moment there where they had some agreement with MTV and much music and all the all the places that played music videos at the time you could not turn on your television like in your college dorm room without catching a simple plan video and that's where my story begins with simple plan like I've 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 seen their videos um I heard their music it's super catchy it's still um if you listen to it now it's still like catchy and enjoyable but it's it's one of those genres one of those uh a lot of their songs are things that when you're 20, you don't think about it all. When you were 13, you probably identified with. But now that you're approaching 40, you're like, I can't listen to this. I can't have 
people hear this out my car window saying, I'm just a kid. Uh, I don't want to go to bed, mom. Uh, and that that's something I think about with like, sometimes I think about Papa Roach, like their first album. I used to uh, put their the Infest album on my boom box when I go outside to uh, play basketball. And I'm just thinking, just thinking back what my mother and father who are happily married would think as they heard uh broken home <laughs> what message were you sending the world like you just yeah, had to have this performative angst out there yeah uh in in revisiting some of these lyrics and bringing an experience i had just recently if bringing them together simple plan kind of is the band that would open for dude perfect like I could see the dude perfect crowd absolutely loving the lyrics uh, at the time as a, like a big fan of the genre. As I got a little bit older, I would get free tickets to go to a lot of these shows when I was living in Chicago and I would bring my buddy and roommate, Kevin. And there were a few times where we walked in and he said, what type of Nickelodeon shit did you bring me to? <laughs> and and it, number one, it's an incredible burn. Uh, it always made me feel bad. But looking back, I mean, incredibly incisive and just a really good summation of kind of what some of the lesser bands who who had a moment back then, I think were guilty of. All right. So going back to college, uh, I remember sitting in the dorm room and the first time that my roommates and I saw Perfect on TV, um, where they're up on the rooftop and they're rocking out and the kids are inside being not knowing how to tell their parents they're not perfect. Um and I and from that moment, it became like kind of mostly an inside joke where we would just and liking it ironically. And my one friend, Mike, who had the CD, he would just play perfect over and over to the point where Simple Plans Perfect has been pay, played at every one of our weddings. And my friend group from college to what has to be the dismay of all the assembled uh adult family members just stand there in the middle of the dance floor screaming the lyrics because we all know it so well and then about i don't know a year later we were sitting in our our first college apartment as uh, seniors and my and mike's like oh some plans going on tour and he's like should i buy tickets and we're like and three of us were like yeah do it and he bought tickets at bogarts in cincinnati ohio which is probably the fourth or fifth uh closest place to us it was an 11 hour drive we made a long weekend out of it we drove to cincinnati we slept on his cousin's floor um we spent a couple nights uh near buffalo um and then went and stopped on the way back because our college was playing an exhibition game, the basketball team against Syracuse, against uh, the Hakeem Warwick, uh, Jerry McNamara team. And I I met my, well, I didn't meet my wife there, but my wife was there because uh, we lived in the same dorm and stuff. But she came out with her friends. And I mean, a lot of us ended up getting married. <laughs> but it, it's just, so Simple Plan is just going to be ingrained in my life uh until the day i die and it's it's gonna be super weird for my children to learn about this and i can't wait for it to happen yeah it's i mean it's a shocking revelation it sounds like <laughs> simple plan i don't know what they're up to now 
it seemed like a good use of money to see and if you could get them together and play a private show because could you imagine they, how wild that was released an album oh well i take it back simple plan is thriving we have time for just a few things more i wanted to go ahead and give you a the big take that I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast. And it's that I think I like simple plan better than Fargo. Oh, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think I love the Fargo series. I think that the series in many way oh. was better than the movie, but I, it comes down to this and you'll excuse my uh, moment of Midwestern pride is I think that this Fargo plays the people's small town sensibilities for laughs and you're mm -hmm. kind of laughing at them. And yes, you have the redemptive moment where you kind of have Francis McDormand saying, what was all this for? And proving that that way of life isn't so stupid after all. But I think that the way the characters are treated in this one is with more respect. Uh, you're not looking your, down your nose at anybody. And I think that the, you know, Jacob especially is handled so beautifully. Um, it, it's It's really amazing. And you realize how happy these people really are and challenge it challenges you to like consider your own viewpoint of what happiness is and, and wonder like if it's more more to reality and, and is healthier than what you're seeing on the screen. So I, I, you know, it's, it's a softy moment and it's obviously uh, you know, maybe like some bias there, but I, I do just kind of appreciate the picture it paints a little bit more than Fargo, which is intentionally more campy. Yeah, I think I think that is a that's a fair take. Um, I think if people watch both movies, which I haven't seen Fargo the movie in twenty years probably, uh, but the series, the first two seasons, uh, were like some of the best TV of the last few years. I think I can really get into the third season, but uh, yeah, Fargo is definitely a simple plan, but with with humor um which is that's just the cohen's thing um obviously i like i mentioned in the problem i thought bill paxton wasn't the top of his game for this one uh, a lot of the times but i judging them side by side as movies you know um if fargo is more of a murder mystery comedy and but if you're just going as a straight movie i i think it's pretty close if people actually uh put them up against each other so i'm not mad at you for that Good. I'm I'm happy you're not mad at me and there's no lingering resentment. There's only time left because I have to go pick up Lou. Um, he's way out of the way, but you know, you understand. It's fine. We can drop him off when we're done. 12 hours. I'm going to go ahead and give this out of four stars. I'm giving it a solid three, five. Um, I don't think it could be a four star movie. You know, I, I think if you make this a four star movie, then you don't reward like a more complicated picture that comes later but i think it's everything that you want and you won't be disappointed and if you go into it with the mindset that you're really going to appreciate the simplicity of it you're going to love it if you're looking for something that reinvents the wheel you might feel like it's a little bit lacking but i think it was maybe the last one like this that i can remember and i was just really happy to revisit it and you know a new thing stands out to you every single time that that you see it i watched it twice for this podcast and the second time i was just kind of blown away at the performance like i said of, of bridget fonda who so oftentimes in this role that's a wet blanket that's someone you don't like 
you really kind of love her and, and see her as an equal in this relationship. And I thought that that was really beautiful and not an easy thing to pull off. Yeah, I think three, three and a half stars is a, a very fair assessment. And I'm just struck by looking at the uh, track listing to uh, no pads, no helmets, just balls. Um, I I think the the first simple plan album has a lot would be a good companion uh, listen to a simple plan the movie. Uh, you got, I do anything, the worst day ever. You don't mean anything. I'm just a kid. Um, God must hate me. And perfect. I mean, and there's a lot in there about. There's a, I mean, it's alluded to, you know, about the trouble with the dad, just trying to be perfect. And, uh, you know, one of them, I mean, they had to sell the farm because one kid went to college. I mean, that's tough. It's but, a good yeah, note. Good movie. It's a good, good note. Album. It's a great thing to have in your holster the next time someone mentions starting Pink Floyd when the lion roars on The Wizard of Oz if you really want to one-up everybody else in the room. That's Stephen Douglas. I'm Kyle Coster. This is the big stream. Watch a simple plan. You won't hate it. And listen. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.